Hello and welcome back to the Ortho Podcast. This is episode number four. This week we're joined by a special guest, Dr. Michael Ilawanya, who's an intern at Tulane in New Orleans. He joins Jay Chen and I uh, to discuss a bunch of things, including basketball, our multiple intramural championships, and then some more serious topics like healthcare disparities, um, you know, the concept of two Americas, and uh, you know, some other interesting stuff. So take a listen, enjoy. If you have any comments, feel free to email us, theorthopodcast at gmail.com. You can send us a message on Twitter at theorthopodcast. Give us a follow. Uh, you can watch this podcast on YouTube as well. You can see the full uh, video there. Just search the Ortho Podcast on YouTube. Like the video, subscribe, leave a comment, uh, and take a listen. Welcome back, everybody, to the Ortho Podcast. This is week number four. Mikey, what's up, bro? <laughs> what is, is that a, I, I, a new day? No, I dropped something. I'm sorry. <laughs> Hey, Mikey. You got the jitters. <laughs> yeah, no, I dropped something. My bad. This week, this week we got Michael Ilawanya, who we we all know from our residency when he was in med school. Mike, what's up, man? What's going on? How y'all doing? Good, man. You're you're at Tulane, right? Yes. Finishing up your intern year. Yeah. Yeah. How's it been? Good. And it's it's intern year, and I anticipate second year. It's hard, but it's good though. Like. Looking back, I feel like I don't, I don't realize how much I learned, but it, I mean, it's been good overall, you know. Yeah, you know, we had uh, we had Midot on here last week, and he's yeah. finishing up second year. He said the same thing. He said second year was good. Uh, he didn't really talk about intern year though, but he said it gets yeah. busier. Um, yeah. Yeah, man. I don't know. You, you liking it over at Tulane? Yeah, I like it a lot. I like it a lot. I like the people I work with and whatnot. And it's. Uh, how do I just so it's like really like high volume and so like it it starts off busy and it kind of stays that way you know in turn and in second year and then third fourth and fifth year things kind of um you're not doing a lot of the like your your focus is mostly in the OR yeah so first and second year we're in the OR a ton but it's everything else that goes along with it, it it's kind of our responsibility. Yeah. How many, uh, how many, I guess not an exact number, but do you feel like you've been in the OR a good amount and have you gotten to do a lot? I feel like I'm in the OR like a lot. Like I feel like I'm in the OR I'm, like more than the average, um, like I think we operate more than the average program. And so um, like I almost can't avoid the OR, you know what I mean? And yeah. um as far as like what I've been able to do, um, uh, like in while in the OR, um, I'd say for the most part I'm uh, usually the junior in the, in the case. So I'm like I, I, I guess I'm a really good attractor. <laughs> and then, yeah. but like like as far as like I guess other things. Uh, consults, uh, you know, I handle, we handle a lot of those. We do traction pins, we do like put on casts, radiuses, and ankles, and all that. So, we I, we get our hands dirty like really, really early, um, and often. And we could, it's because we kind of have to because it's um, it's 15 of us in the program, and um, you guys got three per year, yeah, yeah, three per year, 
have you have you had had enough exposure to figure out what your favorite bone is? I asked Midhop the same question last week. Yeah. Um, you know, I think my favorite bone is. No, I'm not on call. I'm not on call. I'm not on call. That one can wait. Yeah. I think my favorite bone, you know, my favorite bone, one of my favorite procedures is uh, humerus, uh, humerus shaft, uh, fixing humerus. So, your humerus is really your favorite fun. bone? Yeah. yeah. No, Midot said first. He didn't say yeah, he said, he said humerus also. He did. First. Man. They're like really fun to operate. Like they're really fun to operate on. It's a very satisfying surgery. <laughs> very satisfying, you know. Do you really need to fix them? No, you don't. Well, it depends. So like, <laughs> so like, okay, it depends. So you can fix them. You won't be wrong for fixing them. Bro, you can fix anything. You can fix anything, but like a broken arm doesn't necessarily mean. Um, it needs fixing, but like I will usually fix them if it's somebody with you know like polytrauma, like they have a yeah. pelvis and the tibia. That's a good answer. I think polytrauma, polytrauma is a good excuse to fix anything you want. That's a good answer. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's really like the calcaneus in the foot, right, Jay? Man, I've I've done quite a few uh, sinus tarsi approaches this year in fellowship for calcaneus. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm going to fix all of them now. That's the way to go. Where you go? <laughs> yep. Jay, where are you at today? Oh, um, last week I was in um, the Amazon rainforest and I escaped. Um, I was being attacked by a group of monkeys, uh, but I saw a banana and I threw it one direction, and all the monkey, all the monkeys <laughs> ran. <laughs> all the monkeys ran that way. So now I'm in the uh, I'm in uh, Atlantis um, in the ocean. Uh, that's where you escape to. Yeah, Atlantis. Monkey from. I think that's where Midas is. So I'm hoping to find his. Uh, was it a gold hand that turns things to gold? Um, but that's gonna be my way. That's gonna be my way to. I think he got. That was his hand. Is it his hand or glove? He touched turned to gold. Yeah. Yeah, he got cursed or something. It wasn't a glove. Well, it's not a curse. He thought it was a blessing at first, and then it turned out to be a curse. I also we'll see about that. I, I don't yeah, think we'll it's in Atlantis either. <laughs> I think you're mixing up. Your I don't think so either. Stories. Where was that? I don't know. I think Greece or yeah. What? So you can't say it's not Atlantis because you don't know. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I don't know what it is, but I know what it's not. <laughs> where I'm at. Where, where are you at? Who? Me or Mikey? You. I'm on my couch, bro. I still don't have a desk. I'm recording yeah. from my lap. <laughs> you need to get out and travel. <clears throat> yeah, I wish. They're not letting us travel right now. Are they still not letting you travel? Yeah, they haven't told us otherwise. They said we're, we're still not allowed to travel. So, Is this a regulatory? Yeah, yeah. yeah. ACG, for our ACG, me said that. Really? Yeah, they, they said we're not allowed to. If we travel somewhere, we have to do like a two-week self-quarantine or something. That, you know, last really? time I said that was like a month ago, so I don't know if that's still true or not. But yeah, oh, shoot. they haven't told us otherwise. Yeah. So, do they mean like outside of the city limits or outside of the county? They didn't or say. they didn't really say. So it's all very vague. Yeah, it's it's super vague. I mean, I think it's all just liability from the yeah. you know, lawyers and legal department. 
But that's, I mean, that's what it sounds like. I mean, how would they even know if you like traveled? Bro, I, I'm not gonna say anything that's gonna incriminate. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, how would they know if you traveled or not? Yeah. Like, how do they know about your trip two weeks ago to like, you know, Italy? <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about, bro. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> you're gonna get me anyway. in trouble, Jay. <laughs> so, yeah. Thanks for the souvenirs. Um, but so you guys, you guys are the same city, is that right? Yeah. 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 We're both in New we flew together a couple times too. Yeah, bro. Okay, for the for those who don't know, my Mikey's got a he's got an impressive basketball CV. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, what, what, you got no, one, wait, one time, two time intramural champ. Wait, you guys played ball this year? It was two. You said what? You guys scooped together this year? Yeah. Yeah, we have. Yeah. Yeah. We go, went to the same rec center. We go to the same rec center. We play ball. I had nobody shut down this year. You said nobody to hoop with. Aren't you in North what? Carolina? You don't, you don't have anybody to hoop with? No. So I, I go to the gym I went to in, in undergrad, uh, Duke. And mm -hmm. um, it's just what I remember. I'm just dominating a bunch of like, yeah, anyway. But it's not, <laughs> uh, the competition is not as legit as, uh, as I've seen before. I used to ball when I, was, when, I, when I grew up here. I used to ball at UNC Chapel Hill. And um, they had some decent competition. And then uh, for a while, I balled at East Carolina. Those guys were pretty legit. Um, but Duke is, you know, out of those three places I've played at a lot in North Carolina for university gyms, um, Duke is probably three out of three worst. No <laughs> I, I love you, Duke. Hey. I've got two intramural championships from my time at Duke, so you know, there's a lot of love there. But, and and uh, UTMB, too, huh? I got two intramural championships. Yeah, you two UTMB. We got two three-on-three -three championships, right? Yeah, we did. My, Mike yeah, was on did. one of those teams, right? I was on one of those. Yeah, I Mike was on one of those three championships. Go ahead. I remember. So yeah. I, I was gonna, you know, this year I had I had a plan to uh, try out for the Duke undergrad or the Duke basketball team again, uh, but when I went to tryouts, they told me I had exhausted all of my eligibility because the three of us won five dollars in that three-on-three -three tournament. Oh, that's true. So I'm, I'm no longer <laughs> eligible to play D1 basketball. We're amateur. Uh, anyway, <laughs> good time. Mike, what, what you've been doing to stay healthy up there? Besides, the, the gym shut down, right? The gym is shut down. Um, there is a uh, another gym at uh, the hospital on that. Oh, yeah? Like they, yeah, and it's like legit. Like they have weights up to, up to eight. Yeah, so dumbbells up to eight. You have a bench press, and they have um, a uh, a treadmill, but they don't use a treadmill. Is that UMC? Yeah. You is UMC the new one that they built? Mm -hmm. Dude, I, I've been inside that lobby. Like coming back from a Saints game, I had to pee really bad, and I went inside that yeah. lobby. It's yeah. super nice. It's like a super nice hospital. It's super nice. <laughs> it like goes down at UMC, like as far as trauma, though. Like yeah. It's like there's a ton, like there's a ton of trauma that goes that goes on at UMC. Is it mostly like gunshot there. stab wounds or what? A gunshot. It's like everything: gunshot wounds, um, car accidents, uh, people falling, uh, and then I guess like lower energy stuff, like you know, fall from standing or whatnot, or people with you know little old ladies that fall yeah. and break their hip or something. Yeah, so you get everything. You know? mm -hmm. 
you get everything. You see people with metastatic cancer fall and just break both of their both of their femurs. You know, it's crazy. Like that. So, so now that you're like a year into it, um, why don't you why don't you tell the audience kind of what your process is? How'd you decide to do orthopedics? Uh, how'd you get to where you are now? And um, is it what you thought what you thought it was going to be? So I came in to medical school, like wanting to do orthopedics. Like I got introduced to it young and then, well, I got introduced to it, you know, through my sister who had an injury and I kept with it, you know, ever since then. And so, you know, the process was, you know, study, try to do well on step one and two um, and go on interviews and whatnot. And kind of uh, try to uh, really be, uh, like a, a really good student because orthopedics is like super competitive. Um, and I know because I applied and I didn't match after going to, I went to UTMB, I applied to orthopedics, I didn't match. And so um, I, did a, I did a prelim year in Chicago. And I think that prelim year was like really good. You know, you know, you learn about, you hear, I've heard about prelim years and they all sounded like horror stories, but you know, at least where I, I'm glad I went to the one that I went to because, you know, we worked hard, but I mean, had our best interest at heart. Um, so during that prelim year, um, I reapplied to orthopedics and then uh, I matched. And so, um, nice. and so now I've been going through this year and it's, uh, you know, as far as like, what is it what I expect it to be? Uh, yes and no. Like, I expected it to be, like, hard. I expected it to be, like, long hours. I expected it to be, um, you know, all those things. But, like, the no is like, oh, man, well, shoot. This is, you know, really, you know, really, like, it's it's my craft. It really, really consumes me. You know what I mean? Just because of the time that's put into it so much. So, you know, I, you know thinking that I didn't expect to have as, you know, some of the challenges, like challenges, like, you know, balancing, you know, different things outside of work, you know. And so, uh, yeah, it's, but overall it's been pretty much what I expected it to be, you know. Hey, let me let me take you back to that uh, prelim year. Cause one thing we get asked a lot about from people that don't match is what to do. Yeah. Do I do a prelim year? Do I do a research year? How'd you pick a prelim year? And then what was good about about you? You were in Rush, right? Yeah, I was at Rush. What, what was good about Rush that you think helped you match that next time? Um, because I feel like at Rush, like, like really the environment. So one, my pro, the general surgery program director and the orthopedics department there was like great. Like, she really, 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 you know, helped me, helped groom me, you know, not only as a better doctor, but, you know, as a better applicant. Um, and then I think Rush in particular, like, like the general surgery, orthopedics, really the whole hospital, I kind of feel like, you know, in general, your hard work gets rewarded. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, a lot of, oftentimes, what well, really oftentimes the reward for more, the reward for work well done is more work, you know, and that's, kind of just that's just life but um you know like at least in when I was there you know I really felt like people who worked hard 
you know, generally were recognized for it or in some form or fashion. People were a lot, and I had something specific that I really wanted to get out of it. And so I think just the environment, the environment at Rush, the, um, the pro my program director who really um, took time to groom me and the other prelims um, into like better doctors and, and um, better applicants. Uh, I think those are the things that really helped. And then me specifically, what I think the difference was between like whenever I applied and didn't match versus whenever I applied and did match. I mean, I think the biggest difference um, was really just like, you know, interviewing, you know, the stuff uh, in hindsight, I really think that, you know, away rotations, interviews and whatnot, the stuff really goes a long way. The stuff that happens that you do in person, um, I think that it is just a lot more impactful than um, numbers. Like you, you know, somebody will have, uh, you know, solid numbers. And they, you know, they didn't get a you know 280 on step yeah. or something like that, but they have you know solid step or uh, solid ortho numbers. And you know, at that point, they kind of blend in. Everybody has. Yeah. That. So, mm -hmm. um, now you're in the door. So how do you stand out? You know, you just. And so I think the things that really take you far are the things that um, you do in person. And so you even hear about, you know, people that didn't have the best numbers, you know, still match orthopedics because, you know, because of that, you know. That was, and so I think that was the thing that really, that really was the difference between, at least for me, between matching and not matching, you know. Yeah, you know that with the, with, I think two things. One, step one, going pass fail now is hopefully going to help with some of that. Um, dude, I think this year is going to be really weird because, you know, there's no away rotations this year. They're not doing it, and uh, you know, there's a good chance that most of the interviews are going to be virtual too. At least for fellowship, I know that's going to happen. Um, right. So how do you get a personal connection? How do you? How do you like stand out? Everyone's going to start blending together this year. So I feel really bad for whoever's applying this year. It's going to be tough. Um, it's going to be a little bit of a crapshoot, I think. I don't know. For sure. I think it's going to be a crapshoot. And I also think that um, the – so I think that step one going to pass fail is just going to make step two turn to new step one. Yeah, that's what a lot of people say. You know, it's, uh, I didn't have to take step two when I did it. It was just weird. I took step two after I submitted my rank list or after the program submitted their rank list. So your I step two wasn't on your, your thing? Huh? Your step two wasn't on your uh, application? Nope. No, my step two was not on my application. I took it in like February or March. Dang. I can't remember. Yeah, but, you know, that, that was the advice I got was that if your step one score is good enough and, you know, step two can only really hurt you at that point. I mean, you keep in mind, this was like six years ago too. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I mean, it's just crazy how fast it changes from yeah. step two being optional to now being basically the only objective barometer that all med students have. So it, it's just crazy. But I do think, I said this last time when we talked about this, I do think that step two is probably a better indicator than step one of your ability. So if we're going to emphasize one of them, I think it's probably better to emphasize step two because it's less basic science focused and more clinically focused. 
I agree with that. I agree with that. But, um, you know, I don't really think that. Um, I don't know. I kind of think. So I, do yeah, think I don't that, think any of them are good indicators. Right? Yeah, I don't think yeah, any yeah, of them are really good not. indicators, you know. They're not. They're not. I agree with that. They're really just indicators of how well you can take a standardized test, which I guess by proxy is how well you can dedicate yourself to studying for a long time. Um, but I mean, there's better ways to find that out, right? I mean, you, right, you, get, right. much, you, got, you get way more from a 30-day interview away rotation, right? Oh, yeah. About someone yeah. than you do from their step score. Yeah, for sure. Jay, you're going to have Thank to you. interview people this year, right? Yeah. So how are you going to do it? What, what are you going to look for? Yeah, I don't know. I had this elaborate plan where I was going to have them bench press and do grip strength. Not anymore. And, uh, <laughs> vertical jump. I, I guess I could have them do vertical jump on video or run a 40 speed. So what are you, what are you uh, going to do if you get someone who's disabled in a wheelchair? I'm going to have them do grip strength. They probably have great, <laughs> they probably have great grip strength. Um, but no, that's a, uh, that's a fair question. Um, I don't, I don't like, I don't like numbers. I, I do think that letters of recommendation, you know, there's, there's this thought that everyone just writes everyone a good letter, but I do think that you can discern between the lines, you know, if a, if a letter is really saying a student is good or a student is great. So I do think I'm going to try to, to read between the lines a little bit. And I think I'm not going to be afraid to, if, I'm gonna to have to read the rules on this, but if I'm allowed to call some of the letter writers and see what they really think, you know, if I'm in between a few, it's, a few potential residents. So I'm glad you brought um, that up because I think that's what that's what it's gonna be. It's gonna be phone calls behind the scenes yeah. that are that's gonna be what get people in this year. Is yeah. That, if your attendings aren't willing to make a phone call for you, then you're you're gonna be way behind. Right, because we everyone looks is gonna look the same on paper. Yeah. And everyone's going to look different on appearance, but you can't discriminate, you know, based on appearance. I don't think that's fair. So what do you really have to go on? So, and then in terms of interview questions, I'm going to ask them, um, I've always thought that there's the, probably the most important attribute to, to being a good resident is whether or not you take pride in your work, because that reflects itself in, in every kind of environment that you could be in. So if you're on call, if you take pride in your work, you're going to make sure that reduction looks good. You're going to make sure that splint looks good. If you have cases tomorrow and you take pride in your work, you're going to make sure you're prepared for those cases. If you take pride in your work, you're not going to give work to, you're not going to pass off work to your colleagues. Um, so I always think that's a good indicator. And So how do you test that to, in a virtual interview? <clears throat> I need to figure that out. I don't know. I've got a few, <laughs> I've got like half a year to figure that out, but um, I'm going to think of some good questions to, to ask and hopefully I'll be able to discern that a little bit from from an online interview. Speaking of online interviews, um, we may may be writing a paper on how to do one. So keep your eyes open. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. So yeah. rejected twice with some some losers that I can't say the names of because they'll get me in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <We'll see. laughs> All right. But that's a good question. Um, hmm. Um, Mikey, so what's been, go, ahead. go ahead. Mikey, what's been the most challenging aspect of your early residency? What are, what are some struggles that you're having? Finding time for sleep. 
Now, getting enough sleep is actually a, a legit challenge, especially on really on trauma. Um, and then um, trying to, uh, I don't know, like figure out like uh, like a good like good study resources and tools. In med school, you know, you kind of hear unanimously from a lot of different people. Oh yeah, everybody everybody uses like you know first aid and U world. Or whatnot but this isn't med school anymore and a lot of people like kind of branch out and do their own thing some people you know at least for you know a lot of people ortho ortho bullets is pretty you know it's pretty standard but um you know aside from that um people kind of use different things rest study is a really good one um books or if you ask five different people you'll get five different answers and so that's one thing like trying to go from uh learning it to learn it is not a fun process and it's, and it's also just trying to figure out the tools to get through that process is kind of dear it's kind of kind of hard it's been challenging there's a lot of books out there and there's a yeah, lot of yeah there's a lot of yeah. I remember when I was when I was junior it's like um, sometimes there's so much stuff out there to learn that's it's overwhelming almost and you just don't want to learn yeah, anything yeah. yeah having too many choices and whatnot one yeah. thing like put one thing it's like that's also challenging is like learning these because i mean learning these like you know reductions and making uh you know the work look you know good you know just like you said you know like uh uh you know putting somebody in a cast or something like that you want your cast to look good but then like as a junior resident who's but we went from a med student who yeah. hadn't really never done it before, or at least had seen it done, but never been the one doing it. So yeah. being a resident who's the one who's expected to do it, um, you know, it's definitely a different, it's definitely a difference, you know? And so, um, and then when it's done, it doesn't look like somebody, I mean, kind of, kind of crude, you know, being a junior resident, you know, very crude and a lot of things. And so, um, but I, I know with repetition, it gets better, but I mean, it's just the growing pains are flowing. Mike, are you, are you taking call by yourself at night? Or? Uh, yes. Well, so right now it's buddy call, literally in a month, it'll be um, solo call. Like next week we start a solo call. You excited? And so. No, yes, no. <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> 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 you laughed. <laughs> you excited? <laughs> um, because you know it's it's, uh, it's so many. It's a lot. And, you know, it's so many calls. It's it's busy nights. You know, it'd be like um, I don't know, ten, fifteen, twenty. I've had one as many as twenty-five consoles. And so um, it can be overwhelming. It's a good, I mean, it's a good learning experience. So you get some like good hands-on experience too. So you get your, you know, you get your reps in, but um, it would just be nice to get some sleep at the end of it. Are you <laughs> No post-call days are hard. You, you said what? Are you alone or do you have a team? Like a call team? You're, a call team. Yeah, no, it's not a call team. It's like whoever's on call. So usually it's like, 
Yeah, usually it's like an intern and a two and like a chief. Well, like an intern and a three and a chief. Oh, so you, you do have some backup then? Yeah, yeah. So it'd be like, um, like I was running through something. Like somebody calls with a, um, uh, a tibia shaft fracture. Yeah. And so the intern may go see the patient first and, and then a three yeah. may uh, go follow right behind him and put him in. Like a split, the wrong yeah. split or something. Like the, and then if, it, if we're going to the surgery that night, and that's when the chief would come in. I want to talk about this um, this culture in orthopedics. So I remember when I was a junior resident, uh, starting out taking calls at PGY2, there's this kind of almost a pride in not calling your chief for stuff, not waking them up at 2 or 3 a.m., um, and just kind of trying to deal with it yourself. So I remember, you know, we've all had, we've all had this experience and it's not talked about a lot, but a lot of times we're learning on the fly, kind of like you mentioned, we're looking stuff up on, on videos, even on YouTube on how to do things. And it's just kind of the way the culture has been ever since I've been, been in, in it at least. So what are your, what are your thoughts? What are you guys' thoughts on this, this culture of orthopedics of trying to, trying to be independent and trying to figure stuff out on your own? in the middle of the night and how do you balance that with patient safety? Well, I mean, I think that, I don't know. I kind of think that, no, I'll, I'll call my chief in the middle of the night if, if because I mean, if something goes wrong and you know, the chief didn't, didn't know what was going on, then it's kind of, you know, on the person that, that didn't want to call, didn't want to make the call whenever they, I guess, felt kind of uncomfortable about what they were doing. Um, I do think that as, you know, you, you know, more, as we get more reps and learn things better, then those phone calls will stop and, you know, and, and get less, you know, become much more, much less frequent. But, uh, I don't know. I mean, I do, I do see the culture, but I don't think it's something, I don't think it's, I don't think any good can come from it, you know? And so, and so, so when you're the, when you're the upper level resident, you're going to, you're going to like happily field all those phone calls from your juniors, you know, two o'clock, three o'clock, four o'clock. I'm not going to be happy about it, but like, it's <laughs> not, but these are like, so orthopedic consults are usually like, you're going there to do something like you're going there, you're, essentially like you're going to there to do some kind of procedure to, I don't know, cut an abscess, reduce a radius, um, you know, place a cast or something like that. And so, um, you know, I think that, you know, if I'm the chief, like you can really, you can really, you know, hurt somebody, you know, if you do things um, like poorly. And, and so, you know, I, you know if I'm the chief, um, I think that those phone calls, uh, while they'd be annoying, they, I mean, I, they'd be understandable, you know. And I think that, you know, if there are this many at the beginning of it, there will be, you know, this many towards the middle or end of it, yeah. you know. Yeah, my, my so, whole thing when I was a chief was, I, I was, the one thing I would get mad at was people calling with no idea what to do. And like, like for common stuff, obviously if it's something weird, and like you've never seen before that's one thing but like if it comes in a distal radius and like, hey i got a distal radius here 
cool, I guess. What do you want, what do you want me to do? What, what are you telling me? Have you reduced it? Have you casted it? Have you splinted it? Do you have any x-rays? Like, at least do some of the workup and have some of the plan and, like, attempt something. And if you can't get it, I mean, you can't get it, right? Like, like uh, I can't get mad at you for not having the ability not to do something. Right, like if you can't reduce a hip, I can't. I, like I'm not gonna get mad at you for that. You gotta you gotta reduce the hip one way or another. But if you if you don't have like any workup or any plan or any information about the patient, and you're calling me right when you get a consult, like I, I'm not gonna do the work for you. Like that's part of the process. You gotta go in. You gotta do the workup and at least try to get something done before you call call your chief. Um. That, I mean, that's where I stand. Yeah, you, you don't want to be unsafe. Like, I've gotten in trouble as a junior for not calling my chief, probably, probably more than I got in trouble for calling them. Uh, I was probably more on the other end of the spectrum where I tried to be independent. I mean, I don't, I don't think I did anything too crazy. You know, obviously, if it was going to the OR, I'm calling someone. But um, or for something I didn't know, I'm calling someone. Uh, but it's, it's a hard balance. You know, it's, it's a really tough balance. I do 100% agree with that, like doing as much of it as you can do. And then, um, but then like, I think, you know, as soon as you get to the point where like, hey, I'm about to go, uh, hey, I got, so dis disarradius fracture, for example. Hey, this person has a disarradius fracture, they're opening, they're closed, and their exam is like this, they have these x-rays. Okay, great. I want to reduce them and put them in a cast split, what have you. Um, I think that's the way, you know, a phone call in the middle of the night should go. Yeah. But, you know, what you just said with the, you know, no work, no x-rays, no work up, that is, I mean, it's, you, I think you're just wasting everybody's time. Yeah, there's no point to it, right? Like, yeah, I'm not going to tell you what yeah. to get and what to ask them and what to, what to document and all that. Mm -hmm. Have something done. At least that's the way I felt. I don't know, Jay, what were you like? I never... Yeah, I, I never call anyone for anything. I just got to – no, I'm just kidding. Um, I, I think both of you guys were uh, – had some great points. I agree completely. So, I think for – if somebody calls the upper level and all they do are present is present information, <clears throat> that's like – that's like a, in my mind, that's a medical student level. You're gathering information and you're presenting it. Even if you're not sure what to do, I think it's good for a junior resident to at least try to give a plan. You know, this is what's going on. That's the medical student level. Here's the diagnosis. Now, this is what I think I should do. You know, uh, reduce it this way, send it out, or maybe I think I should, you know, keep it in house for, for whatever reason. I think that's where you make the transition from a reporter to someone who's, who's actually planning and managing patients. So uh, you don't expect junior residents to know how to do that. Um, right off the bat, but you do expect them to at least give uh, give an attempt when they call. So I agree. I, I think the culture is not necessarily a good culture of, of always trying to do stuff yourself that you may not have done before or seen before. Um, so definitely, I think it's it should be encouraged to, to call if you're uncomfortable. Um, but at the same time, on the other end, you have to do yourself a, fee a favor and try to and try to do more than just report the facts. At least even look on ortho bullets. Yeah, and so what I was like as a resident, you asked, um, it was as much the same as you. I, you know, there's there's almost this, uh, you know, you don't you don't want to, you all, you feel like you almost don't want to annoy your upper levels, and that's why I brought this question up because you know that's something that I think everyone's gone through. I was asking, 
Mikey what his biggest struggle was, you know, as a as a resident so far. And for me as a junior resident, that was probably one of my biggest struggles was just deciding when to ask for help and when to try to tackle something yourself. Um, but I like the answers you guys gave. I think it's I think those are very thoughtful, good answers. Yeah, I feel like knowing what you can and can't do is, I mean, as once you've like kind of pushed the limits of what you can do, I think that's kind of um, that's when you know that you should you should you should probably make a phone call. But you know, if you if you can do more than if you can safely do more than do more, you know. And so, I mean, I think that's kind of like where it's at. You know, even a chief or an attending out in practice, you know. Um, um, they know what they can't, they have the, they have the, you know, foot, I don't know, foot and ankle position. If it's, you know, they take trauma call and something that's well within their ability to do, like a, a humorous, which are so fun to, fun to repair. <laughs> I, I, I used to put on those like sick, <clears throat> sick uh, splints for those. Jeez, oh, man. Uh, What's that? Co-optation splints? Are they still doing those? Do you still have to put those on? Yeah, are you, are you still doing those? That is, that is mm -hmm. the most useless splint in the history. It's, I, I hate hey, those splints. Hey, not if you put them on right. No, they don't do no, anything. They, Even if you put them never, on right, they don't do anything. You got to shove that all the way into the axilla. <laughs> the, other, the other side, you got to bring all the way around to the neck. Yeah. Wrap around their other side. And then it falls off, and then it droops, and then it loses its reduction, and... You end up putting in a shoulder immobilizer like you should have done in the beginning anyways. I've never seen that happen, so I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> this is a totally nah. useless thing. Coaptation splits are good, like temporary things, but like a Sarmiento, I think those are actually good. Why not, why not just put them in a, in a sling? Just put them in an immobilizer. That's, that's the old form, Forminator. Yeah. This, this, because this, they can like, I mean, they can like fall. You want to... Want them in Vargas, don't you? Yeah, but it's not gonna stay in Vargas. You're not gonna you're not holding that thing reduced with that that crappy splint that you're throwing on. Not you. There's a better chance to hold anyone reduced in with a with a sling. I once I once had an attending um tell me to put on a uh, one of those collapse splints and then a uh, a splint, uh, a short arm splint as well. No, sugar tongue. For sugar tongue. Sugar tongue with a co-op. Just the radius. He's like, all the force of this will, all this weight will reduce the fracture and keep yeah. it reduced. So, the gravity cast. Yeah. Putting on a gravity cast. Yeah. That, was so that, fun. that is just, that is a waste of healthcare dollars. Like they never like they're never satisfying. They never look good. It's I, I personally don't like them. And it's so useless. they're I'm telling you it's useless. If, when I'm, I'm, I'm going to pull up some of my old splints and show you guys how it's done. X-rays. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's no way. I don't know what costs more, the plaster material or the sling. Probably the sling, honestly. But I don't know. I'm not doing that. When I get in, when I'm taking call, mm-hmm. All right, here's another, here's another um, question that I have that's very pertinent to being a junior resident, all right? So say, say you've been up all night reducing fractures and handling plaster and your scrubs are just, you know, soaked with, with plaster. There's like white plaster on your shirt top and on your pants and on your drawstrings and on your shoes. 
do you change into a new pair of scrubs for morning side out or do you keep those scrubs? Because if you keep those scrubs, it looks like you've been working hard. If you change into a new pair of scrubs, it looks like you've been working hard without breaking a sweat. So, I do you do? I would, um, for sign out, I'm keeping the scrubs. I mean, why, why change? I would change before I left the hospital, though. You know? I mean, so I think I think a six sign out. So let's say I give a sign out. Oh yeah, you know, last night I reduced tendus radiuses, twenty both bones, um, like fifteen uh, trimal ankles, and uh, I look so fresh. Like yeah, man, really nice. <laughs> that know. means you weren't splinting hard enough, man. That's a, <laughs> I got, got X-rays to prove it. That means that means you're throwing on those little shitty collapse splints that you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> So you, so you keep your scrubs. You keep all that plaster. Yeah, yeah, dude. It's a badge of honor having all that plaster in there. It is a badge, of, a badge honor, of honor. No lie. I'll change it for clinic, but not for yeah. sign out. Yeah, you got to look professional in front of patients, but yeah. you got to sign out? No, you got to have some plaster on you. Uh, yes. Right. <laughs> okay, so, so the for sure, for sure. Say you have, you have like a new hitter and you haven't done anything all night. Do you sprinkle some plaster on your scrubs? <laughs> to make it, to make hey, go ahead, sprinkle it. <laughs> you know. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, yeah. I gotta bring some questions, man. <laughs> what are you doing? Just playing around with the plaster, wasting all our healthcare dollars? For no. <laughs> well, I mean, you've been working, right? I mean, you just said you have no hitter. You're not working, dude. Yeah, but you, no one notices if you have plaster on, or or you say you've been practicing. Your reductions. On what? On who? On yourself. With yourself. <laughs> well, you got a plaster on you, fool. No way, man. No way. If I'm if I have no consults, I'm taking a nap. I'm not I'm not practicing splinting. On the food, that's probably what we're doing. <laughs> taking a nap. All right, fair point. Fair point. Fair point. <laughs> <laughs> did you ever practice on yourself, Shay? <laughs> no. No, you never did. Ridiculous <laughs> concept. Why did you ask that question? Did y'all prefer? Did y'all? Did y'all um prefer like plastic plaster casts or or fiberglass casts? Y'all do a lot of casting. When uh, you mean in, children? In residency, a lot of casting. Yeah, in residency. Yeah, yeah. Just at Texas Children's, we we did uh, actual casting. Everywhere else we use plaster. We started doing more casting towards the end, though, for kids. Just yeah. put them in a cast yeah. and bivalving it. Yeah. But, and then one of our guys liked to do plaster casts, where he would just take the plaster rolls and use that like a cast. Yeah. Uh, yeah, they, we kind of, we do a lot of, we do a lot of plaster casts, actually. He, they said what about Fudista? What about what? What about Fudista radius? Is y'all, um, y'all like just, uh, sugar tongue? Yeah. 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 yeah we, we typically cast those, and then really? yeah, we cast like pretty much if they have a distal radius fracture, like they're getting a cast. How much? Uh, how then, much Medicaid do you guys see at UMC? A lot of it. A lot of it. Like we see, we see a lot of people at UMC. Um, insurance, no insurance. Everybody's just yeah. we see everybody, and then like we see a lot of people that like you know hurt themselves. Go to one hospital, and then that hospital is something. Yeah. 
So do you so, do you do these plaster casts because you don't think they're going to come back to clinic because they're uninsured or they don't have the money? Because I mean, New Orleans, New Orleans is like a pretty poor area. You know, there's a lot of yeah. population here. Yeah, we do those plaster casts. I mean, we give them a chance to heal, you know, because not everybody. Yeah, exactly what you just said. Like a lot of people, like you'll never see them again. Um, and so we try to give them a chance to heal. And if we do decide to fix it, um, then, you know, just take the cast off, you know? Yeah. Is there a, is there an indigent program in New Orleans? I'm sorry? Is there like an indigent program in New Orleans? Like, like a way for patients without health insurance to get the operations they need? Well, I mean, I know a lot of patients, like even patients that aren't even in the U.S., like aren't aren't like U.S. citizens, right? Um, don't have health insurance, but can't get health insurance yeah. for whatever reason. Like if it's, you know, they they get surgeries, they get surgeries at U.S. At least like at least uh, for traumatic injuries, they get yeah. some surgeries. Elective surgeries, um, yeah. Uh, I, I don't know about those ones, but for sure, um, like somebody comes in like a gunshot wound or something like that. Yeah. Like they'll, like they'll, uh, we'll definitively fix them. And what, so- What part of New Orleans do you live in? Well, I'm actually moving to Mid-City. Oh, I live in the Lower Garden District right now, but I'm moving yeah. to Mid-City um, uh, this weekend. Oh yeah, nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, nice. you know, as one thing about New Orleans that I've noticed, and I think, I think you and I have two very different views of the patient population here, because I'm at Oshner where it's mostly private insurance. It's mostly older, middle-class people, athletes. You're at UMC where you see a lot of the trauma, a lot of the poor. And it's kind of like New Orleans, right? There's not like a big middle class. It's like you've got, you've got poverty mixed in with wealth everywhere. Like I'm, in, I'm in Uptown and like, you know, I'm right by Napoleon. I'm on the good side of Napoleon. If I go two blocks the other way, it's 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 the hood like it's it's bad over there like yeah. i'm right off claiborne you know uh right, right where that popeyes is mm -hmm. and uh you, you know that corner i think it's i think it's washington there's on claiborne there's that little shop called chicken and watermelon i know exactly you know what I'm i've actually about? heard that place is really good i've heard it's good but there, there's, <laughs> there's, there's shootings there like once a month like right like one of my one of my co interns, he like saw somebody like five minutes after the person got shot, like saw them like you know bleeding out. Yeah, you know it, like it, it's it's right by here, and like my side of Napoleon's nice. Like you know it's all gentrified, it's all hipsters, like coffee shops and you know all, all the nice places over here. But literally two blocks the other way, and you you're in trouble, man. It's it's really two two Americas right next to each other. And I don't know, the hospital systems are kind of the same too. Like, I know, I know Oshner gets some of this stuff. I, I don't work at the main hospital because, you know, that's where most of the, you know, trauma and stuff goes. So I don't really see that side of it. But our clinics are, you know, mostly insured patients with like stable injuries. But I don't know, you see a, you see a totally different side of things. Yeah, yeah. Like what you said is like 100% true about like right here is, affluence and then literally right next door is it is right there man yeah <laughs> they're like neighbors next door neighbors literally yeah it's scary um but uh yeah yeah so we at least at umc it's not like it's a lot of people that's like not insured yeah. 
And I guess not recently, but a lot of these, a lot of people that you know, be tourists or in, in the city for one reason or the other, and they do have insurance, uh, but they have a traumatic injury. So that's how they end up yeah. us at UMC. Um, but um, I think more often than not, um, a lot of these people just don't have insurance. So um, when you or, take care of these, um, when you take care of these uninsured patients and they need surgery from some kind of a fracture or what, what do you, what do you guys do? It's never, it's never really something that like, at least it's never really something, at least from our standpoint that comes up like, Oh, what kind of book, whether or not they have insurance it really only comes up like when trying to figure out, um, like, okay, we should, where should they follow up at? Or uh, for care, for definitive care of their, of their injury. So like this patient that has no insurance and they need a, uh, know a nail they broke their tibia and they need a nail um they're going to get a nail what about um, someone and it's like a disarray radius that you can yeah see? like a like outpatient like, like a semi-elective yeah do you Those, guys have a casebook process or what, what's i'm the, sorry do you guys have like a casebook process where you get you try to get the county to help pay for that or no so as far as like typically those we like fix them at umc you know, just erase it, just like kind of semi-elective, depending on what other injury that they have, though. Because, like, for example, there somebody has like a distal radius, and um, I don't know, a, a concomitant tendon, tendon injury, we'll send them to you know a hand specialist. Yeah. Uh, but you know those, they are typically what's within our what's within our like. What we can fix, we do fix. And the usually the most like limiting factor is OR availability. Mm -hmm. You know. So the risk to poor the documented, the undocumented, and your surgery. But then the things that you know, typically become an issue is just like, okay, shoot, this patient um, had surgery and now they um, I don't know need six weeks of antibiotics for an open injury or something like that. Yeah, and they can't um, get it and... Yeah, they can't. That's where it becomes, that's where it comes up and we get, uh, the case managers are really good. And so they uh, they do help a lot with that work. And so, I mean, that's where they come in. So I think um, typically I just defer to case management um, for things like, oh yeah, this patient can't get insurance or pending insurance authorization inpatient rehab for this uninsured patient and all these different things that come up, yeah. you know. So that's typically how, do. how does, I don't know, how does, um, how does like y'all's thing, how does Oshner and how does it, you know, work over? Well, uh, you know, I, I don't think I've seen many uninsured patients. Like the ones I've seen have paid out of pocket for whatever they're doing. Um, yeah. But I'm also just doing sports, you know, so like most you know, most of our patients aren't urgent, really. Um, yeah. Every now and then we'll get trauma. Uh, you know, Oshner Maine, I think it's like a level two or level three. So, you know, they, they don't get a lot of, like, the trauma that you guys do. Yeah. Um, we see, like, you know, a fair amount of patients that, like, were initially seen at Oshner. And, yeah. and then they, don't, yeah, we'll, they can't get their surgery because they don't have insurance or can't afford it. Right. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I, yeah, I don't, I don't know how we usually deal with it. And I, I know we've done Medicaid before, um, 
but I, I haven't seen us operate in a lot of uninsured patients mm-hmm. unless they're paying out of pocket. Yeah, I've seen, um, seen a few show up in clinic with ankle fractures um, that are uninsured, and they get they get done somehow. They get done, but from what I gather, there's some hit to the to the surgical team in terms of uh, not being fully reimbursed or something. Um, so you have to you have to be willing to take to take on those patients just kind of as a as a good to society and, and to the to the person and and realize that that hit is going to take place financially. You may not be fully reimbursed for your time, but I just think it's one of those. When I was a resident, it was always, you know, it was always strange how you would have patients who clearly would benefit from surgery, otherwise they're being doomed to arthritis and and, and disability, and it's. It's just crazy how sometimes you try certain things to get them through the door in the OR, but why are you? Why do we have to resort to these things for for patients? And I think it's one of the things where we all went to medicine to help people. I know medicine's become a business now, and that's kind of that's taken priority, and sometimes maybe to the detriment of of the original reason why healthcare even exists. So I think it's an unfortunate thing, but. It's something we all have to learn how to deal with in our own ways if we're going to work for for hospital corporations and, and big systems. Yeah, yeah, I think that, um, uh, I, yeah, I do think that medicine, dict- uh, not medicine, but money dictates a lot of the, like, direction. Um, you know, a lot of the things, a lot of, the, but money dictates a lot of the reasons why things are done in medicine. Um, but, you know, just comparing you know, where I'm usually at UMC to like Oshner to like a bunch of different places. Like if Oshner is taking, takes the patient patient load that UMC takes, if Oshner took the type of patients that UMC took, like a lot of the uninsured ones, and, I mean, they'd be out of business. They, the light, they couldn't keep the lights on. Yeah. Versus UMC, I mean, it's a community hospital, you know? And so, yeah. I mean, it gets funded, you know, through yep. through different means and so, I mean, well, that's this whole two Americas concept, right? I mean, you have you have the rich hospital and the, the poor hospital, and every city yeah. has it. Right? Yeah. Like like in Houston, the uninsured aren't going to Methodist for their care, right? Mm-hmm. They're going to the county hospitals, and I don't, I don't know if that's. I think it's good that they can get care, but I mean, let's be honest. Like some, sometimes the care is not equal, right? Not everyone's getting the same care, uh, and a lot of that depends on how much money you have. And uh, it's, that's probably not right. It's probably not good. Um, but um, I don't know what I think. I actually do th- think they get the care. They get the same care. The only difference is like when you're private, it's like, shoot, you know, things are timely, things are moving, things are efficient versus, um, you know, when it's like, when it's community, when things are free, you know, when everything's just like, it's a lot of people that, you know, when things are cheaper or free, it tends to be higher volume. And so yeah. things just take longer. You know what I mean? Things aren't as, aren't as streamlined as when, um, you know. Yeah, I, I hear you. I also think the patient populations are different, right? Like you guys are probably generally getting sicker people than we are. And that's probably because of, I mean, uh, it's it's super complex, right? Like that that gets into socioeconomic classes and 
uh, wealth disparities and preventive yeah. care and all that kind of stuff. So, um, you know, the, you, you guys are not only dealing with the higher higher level of patient care, but also sicker patients in general. So probably more complications, uh, harder patients to treat. So yeah, I mean, so but like um, you know, then again, you know, we were comparing at least your. I'm you know, at UMC, we do mostly trauma, and then you know your sports and so like the patient population just inherently would be different. Yeah, yeah, Those are two different two different populations for sure. So it's um, that's a really interesting concept. Uh, two different Americas and two different patient populations. I want to try to tie that into some of the discussion we've had uh, earlier in this podcast about having a diverse uh, physician uh, profile. So so. Do you think, how important is it, do you guys think it is to have physicians, orthopedic surgeons who come from the same background as some of the patients and who can relate better? Do, do patients, is that important to patients? Is that something we should strive to do or is it just, you know, not really not a huge issue? Uh, I think it's super important. Um, so like, uh, I do, I, so I think that, um, you know, me being black, I see a lot of black patients in New Orleans. That's like, that's, that's a good number of the population here. And, you know, patients just off of that alone, you know, will really gravitate to me and kind of, um, you know, be a lot more motivated to adhere to uh, some of the you know, restrictions like weight bearing restrictions and some of the, you know, adhere to the plan that we've, you know, set forth with them. And so, um, you know, I just think, I think it's super important to do that. And you like, you not feel to like say that's that, an advantage for you. you said what? You feel like that's an advantage for you with your patient population? I feel like it's an advantage. Um, I never feel like it's a disadvantage. Yeah, I do feel like it's an advantage. Because that's interesting. Because, you know, like what's, what people had taught, like when I was in med school, and they would they would teach about racial disparities. I can't speak to being black with black patients, but they would talk about how overall, you know, the black community. Is, I think maybe the older black community is generally mistrusting of black doctors. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Have you seen anything like that? Is that true at all? No, I don't. I haven't really gotten that. I think the 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 biggest sort like. The sources like when people are skeptical of me like when i first walk in and say hey i'm your doctor i think that most of their skepticism will come from like how like how young i look yeah um but not but i've never at least at least overtly or explicitly had anybody black or otherwise say um you know get you know uh question my ability because of that now if they did it whenever i whenever i you know, outside of my knowledge, just one thing, but to my face, it's never happened. I think um, when I when I have Asian patients, they it's kind of funny. They they start talking to me in, in Chinese, and my Chinese is like imagine talking to a three year old in English. That's like my Chinese level. So I kind of look at them and I start. You know, it's, it's pretty clear that I'm not super comfortable speaking in Chinese. So, but but I think it really does speak to the fact that they see someone that looks like them and they, they immediately gravitate towards me just because of that. And they start trying to talk to me in a perceived shared language, which 
Um, unfortunately, it's just a perception for the most part because I would like to improve my Chinese, but it does. I think it does make patients more comfortable. And as to your point, Mo, about uh, hearing older Black individuals maybe not uh, trusting younger Black doctors, you know, if if that does exist, it's the same thing that females go go through. Women doctors when they enter a room, and patients are like, "Oh, are you are you my nurse?" And a lot of these are just kind of in ingrained in our minds from uh, previous history and, and some of it's from the media about what a doctor should look like. And if you look at the three of us and a lot of our colleagues, you can see that the demographics of being a doctor is changing just like the demographics of America. And I think these are only good things that can help. So, you know, patients hopefully are, are comfortable and and it's a slow progressive <clears throat> change that, that's going on. But for the most part, it's hopefully a positive thing. I do think that to some degree, you know, like um, the, like the medical workforce should like mirror the actual population. You know what I mean? I know it's easier said than done, but you know, but, that's I mean, I think get, it helps. That's what we got to strive towards, right? Getting yeah. Getting more minorities represented of the population, but yeah, man, that's a that's a good thought. That's a good thought to end on. Actually, uh, get some hope for the future, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. All right, Mike. Appreciate it. You got anything you want to plug? Your social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. What, what you got? Mm. Uh, I got uh, at Savage underscore Mike fourteen. That's my IG. <laughs> All right, we got we to find you then, Mike. All right, bro. Oh, yeah. uh, you can find us, you can find me and you on PubMed together, right? Yes. We, yes. we got a paper on PubMed. <laughs> yes, we do. <laughs> Search that one. Uh, all right, man. Cool. We got to get you back on, man. We got we got a lot more to talk about with this stuff. But... Oh, yeah. I feel like we got, like, we got so much to talk about. We got, I've never really, like, actually talked a whole lot of orthopedics with y'all after being, like, an orthopedist. Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, we got, we got a lot to talk about, a lot to catch up on, a lot we can get into. Yeah. Yeah, bro. Appreciate the time. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll get you back on. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Appreciate y'all having me on. Yeah, man, of course. And that'll do it for us. Episode number four. Thank you, Dr. Michael Iluanya, for your time. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Like I said before, if you have any comments, feel free to tweet us at The Ortho Podcast. Uh, comment, subscribe, and like us on YouTube. Search The Ortho Podcast. Uh, you can email us, theorthopodcast at gmail.com. If you're listening on iTunes, please, please, please leave us a five-star review in the in the review section and uh, any positive comments you might have. So uh, thanks for listening, and thank you for the opportunity. <laughs>